I'm Pastor Jeff, pastor of, uh, I don't know, a lot of stuff around here, and um, I'll be sharing with you from my heart today. Uh, How many of you guys have had a bad church experience in your past? I mean, you went to a church and, okay, a lot of you, okay, good, so I'm on safe ground today. When I was a younger guy, I recommitted my, my life to the Lord in dramatic fashion, and a friend of mine invited me to uh, some church that he found, a little storefront church in Virginia, and he talked it up the whole way in the car. He's like, man, you're going to love this church. church rocks. I was like, all right, sweet. We get there. We go in the building, and it literally, I think, met in a little, in an old 7-Eleven building. And so we get there. The place is already full. We're about 10 minutes late. Already full. The only two seats available are two seats up front. So me and my homie, uh, we had to walk all the way around up front. We sat in the front, and for about an hour and a half, those folks worshiped God. And let me tell you, that was, that was a worship service. I mean, it was pretty raucous. And uh, then the preacher got up to preach. And I was kind of a rough kid back then. I didn't look like this typical straight-laced, you know, uh, pastor's kid. <laughs> um, I was kind of rough looking like a street boy. And the whole hour, the pastor preached. He kept singling me out in his sermon, telling everybody that the Lord was telling him what a sinner I was, and telling everybody, and so he preached for about another 10 minutes, and then he would say, and see this young man down here? And so the whole, he did that the whole message. Now, I wasn't exactly the shy type. I was kind of courageous and bold and rambunctious. So I just kind of sat there and stared at him like, yeah, bring it on. (laughs) I wasn't worried about him. But then after the service, the entire church gathered around me, laid hands on me, and began to cast demons out of me. I don't know. I guess I just looked like I had some demons in me or something. And after about five minutes of that, I got up, walked out the door. My friend followed me, and I said, bruh. Don't ever invite me back to that church. I ain't never going back to that church. He said, me neither, man. (laughs) We got in the car. We left. But if you've ever had a bad church experience, you can relate. Bad church. My mom was attending a church at the time called Weston Assembly of God. Good church. Big church like ours. Wonderful, healthy environment where they were based on sound doctrine. Had a very balanced worship atmosphere. I mean, it was a great church, very similar to East Point Church. And man, my life, I grew and flourished under that church. And I want to ask you the question today. What made the difference between bad church, good church? What was the difference? Leadership. The people leading those churches. And one, you have this church that is led by some wackadoo (laughs) who thinks he's the Apostle Paul's heir. In this other church, you have pastors who are shepherding their people with care and love and responsibly. And that's what made the difference. So Kurt is going to start a a series, as Matt said, next week. I I cannot wait. It's called I Am East Point. Today is the prequel to that called I Am an East Point Pastor. Because I want you to know what it is like to be a pastor and what biblically our responsibility is to God for you. Okay, I'm going to show you that today. So get your pen out, get your note card out, and uh, prepare to burn up the page with some notes. 
Here we go. What does a good pastor look like? Jesus said this. Jesus said, I, in John, he said, I am the good shepherd. The word shepherd means pastor. The word pastor means sheep herder. That's what it means. So when Jesus said, I am the good pastor, what does it mean to be a good pastor? What does that mean? We're going to learn that today. Number one, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Pastors care about harassed and helpless sheep. Pastors care about them. In Matthew 9, 36, it says this, Jesus looked at the crowds with compassion for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Can you imagine Jesus sitting on that hillside looking at the crowds who have showed up for fish and bread and he is, his heart longs to minister to them. And how were they helpless and how were they harassed? In the first century, the Jews were burdened by bad religion. Their version of bad religion was Phariseeism or Sadduceeism or every other kind of ism. Essenism, Herodianism, they had lots of them. But every form of Judaism basically had one thing in common. They saddled the people with onerous, heavy burdens of religion. And the people could not carry them. And Jesus said in Matthew 23, you saddle these people with religion and you will not lift a finger to lift it yourself. And so they were burdened, they were harassed and helpless because of empty, vaporous externalisms of religion. They were also taxed into poverty. These people didn't have a lot to go on in the, <laughs> to begin with, but after they got done paying their federal taxes to Caesar, and then their state taxes to the Herodian economy, to Herod, they really didn't have much left. And then guess what? The guys, the IRS agents, the tax collectors, taking their taxes, ch cheated. They took more than they were supposed to. Guys like Zacchaeus. And that's why the Jews hated them so much. These people were taxed into poverty. So they were harassed and helpless by the tax collectors. They were bullied by pagan tyrants and their minions. Remember a guy named Pontus? You know him as Pontius, Pontius Pilate. When Jesus was two years old, Pontius Pilate crucified 2,000 of Jesus' countrymen right there on the hillsides for everyone to see. And they were burdened and harassed by these pagans. And they were bullied. And they were oppressed and harassed by the power of Satan. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see Jesus was constantly touching the untouchable. He was constantly setting people free with the power of God because they were harassed by the power of the devil and Jesus set them free. So Paul told the Ephesian pastors in the New Testament in Acts 20, 18, Paul is, they're all weeping, they're all crying, they've gathered around in the circle, Paul's gonna leave them, he's never gonna see them again until heaven, okay? And then he charges all of the pastors of that Ephesian church that he planted. Here's what he says, he says this, he says, I want you to shepherd the flock. Keep watch over them. Safeguard them. Watch out for them. Because ravenous wolves will come in to this church and they will destroy it. So Paul told those pastors, watch out for the flock. When good pastors see 
harassed and helpless sheep. Good pastors move into action. They feel compassion for the sheep. Good pastors reach out to those who have been beat up by bad religion. Good pastors reach out to those who have been leached dry of their resources because of bad leadership. Good pastors have compassion on those. Good pastors love the sheep who have been browbeaten by tyrannical control freaks. And they love people. When they see someone in the grip of Satan's deception, they love to bring the truth of God into their lives so they can set that person free. That's what a good pastor does. So let's get real. I know that some of you have come into this church and become a part of this church family, and you're refugees. You're fleeing bad leadership. You're fleeing poor, abusive leadership. You can identify with me. I've heard some of your stories. You know exactly what I was going through when I was 16 years old, going to that crazy church. And my, my message for you today is you are in safe pasture. You're in safe pasture. Because the pastors on this staff love you. We pray for you every single day. We bleed for you. When you hurt, we hurt. We do. So you need to know that the first thing that a good shepherd does is he bleeds for the sheep. He cares for them he feels compassion for the harassed and the helpless. The second thing that you need to know that we do, number two, is pastors feed the sheep. So Jesus has risen from the dead. He's sitting on the beach. The disciples are all around him. And the fire is crackling. You can smell that grilled fish. And Jesus is alive, and these dudes are so pumped. They are so excited, man. There are, there's probably five different conversations going on. And the campfire is just buzzing with conversation about, yeah, the Messiah's up. Up from his nap. He's ready to go. And Jesus leans over to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Remember, Peter had denied him three times. And Peter says, yes. A minute later, Jesus says, oh, hey, Peter, um, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I do. About a minute later, Jesus says, hey, Peter, um, do you love me? <laughs> you know, Peter's starting to get annoyed. Lord, you know I love you. And every single time Peter said, you know I do, Jesus' response was this, then feed my sheep. This is what good pastors do. They feed the sheep. What does that metaphor mean? It means to teach the sheep. Look over in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. It's the job of the pastor to feed the sheep. Here's what it says. All scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired of God and profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. Underline those words. For teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's inspired word is practical. It has a practical use. And this is no affirmation of insipid pragmatism. Its practical use comes from the fact that it is from God. God's word is his authoritative voice for humanity. What it says, every place that it touches, all that it purports to say and teach is authoritative for our lives. And it's here to equip us with God's word, his message, and it works. So here's how we feed the sheep. The first thing Paul says we do here is we teach. 
That's what I'm doing right now. This involves careful instruction in doctrine and practice. Paul told Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Why should you watch your life and your doctrine closely? Why? Well, because you won't be able to live the Christian life if your feet are not cemented, grounded in sound Christian teaching. You can't live the Christian life if you don't know the Christian life. You need sound doctrine. But if all you got is sound doctrine without application in the spirit, well, that's tantamount to malpractice. That's just spiritual malfeasance. You need to know the word, but you need to apply it. So Paul says to Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely, closely. So the first thing the pastor is going to do to feed you is teach you. He's going to teach you God's principles to obey, to walk, to do. Next, we rebuke and we correct. He said it's profitable for correction. He's teaching, but also profitable for rebuking and correction. Nobody likes this one. If you'd like to be rebuked and corrected, could you raise your hand? Because I'd like to meet with you this week. I got some things I need to get off my chest. Nobody likes this. Who likes this? The words he uses there for rebuke and correct mean a stiff jab. It's like a stiff jab. It's like a stiff reprimand. Sometimes the pastor has to do this. When I was in my 20s, I know you cannot possibly imagine this, but when I was in my 20s, I was, just, I was a pugnacious, abrasive, rude person. I, I was a steamroller. Man, let me tell you something. In my 20s, when I was a pastor... We had kingdom business to get done, and if the sheep got in the way, I just made mutton out of them. <laughs> Don't get in my way, man. We got people to evangelize. Bring more sheep in here so I can make more mutton. Well, the pastor that I was serving with, who was my mentor, he's my youth pastor in Virginia. I interned with him in Seattle, and we planted a church together in Minneapolis. And we led that church. That church was exploding, was growing. And my pastor took me out for coffee one morning. It was the day before Christmas. And we sat on Christmas Eve at Caribou uh, Coffee in, in Minneapolis. And he said, uh, hey, man, you're an arrogant jerk. <laughs> and I was an arrogant jerk. So what does an arrogant jerk do when you rebuke them? They get mad at you. I was like, what? What are you talking about? I was ready to go MMA on him. Man, leg take down. And he said, you're an arrogant jerk. You think you are all that in a bag of chips. You ain't. You are not. You don't care about God's flock. That's what he told me. You don't care about pastoring people. You just care about getting kingdom work done. And then he fired me. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and I'm telling you to this day, and it so humbled me. I came groveling back <laughs> and repented. It was so humbling. And I'm telling you that he gave me the gift of rebuke and correction because if he had not done that, I would not be in ministry today. I'm sure of it. He gave me that gift because if he hadn't spoken directly into my life, I would have never self-corrected. This is why we need pastors. This is why we need godly mentors. This is why we need coaches. And, and what Paul calls godly fathers, you need a godly father in your life who can speak into your life and say, you're not getting it on this one. You don't see something about yourself that is true. Pastors rebuke and correct. I needed that wake-up call. 
and he called me on it. Here's how we're to do it. 2 Timothy 4.22 says this. He says, preach the word, you pastors. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct rebuke, but do it like this. With encouragement, great patience, and careful instruction. Why? Look at this. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn away their ears from the truth and turn to worthless myths. Now, Paul says you are to rebuke and correct with a heart of care, with encouragement. The reason why my mentor was rebuking me is because he cared about me. He wanted me to be in ministry 20 years later. That's why he did that. And notice he says... The reason why we do that is because people will be turning to false teaching. And the cults in Paul's day and Timothy's day, they were just false religions like Mithraism and Dionysus and all these Greek cults, right? Today, what are our cults? We don't have those today, but what do we have? America has some cults. The cult of secularism, the cult of self-worship, those are our cults. And these are the cults that, just like Timothy and Paul, these are the ones that we pastors fight against every single week. Every time I walk in here and preach, or Kurt does, every time you walk through that door, I I am trying to correct those false worldviews that you have been handed by the world. You have been inundated by them. Because secularism will tell you that you don't need God in your life. Postmodernism will tell you that you are the final authority for God in your life. And the cult of self-worship in America will tell you, get all you can out of life. But it's the pastor's job. It's your pastor's job to tell you, you can't get along without God. Not one day, not one minute, and not one second. You can't live without him. That's my job. It's the pastor's job to tell you that postmodernism is wrong. You are not the final authority on your life. You ain't the authority on nothing. God's word is. And I'm the prophet sent by God to tell you that. It's my job to tell you that the cult of self-worship is wrong and it will mess up your life. You can't go through your life worshiping yourself and extracting life out of others. If you go through life extracting life out of others instead of giving it to them, Jesus said you will lose it. You try to take life from people, you'll lose your life. But if you want to be a life giver, you'll find it. And that's my job. My job is to tell you the truth that your culture will not tell you. They won't tell you. But it's my job to tell you. So we teach. We rebuke. But we correct, and it's not fun. <laughs> it's not fun. That's so fun. Okay. <laughs> the pastors are called to do one more thing. We're called to train people in righteousness. Train the flock in righteousness. It's not just my job to teach you. I taught my little kids how to go potty. The first time I taught them. Did they know how to go potty? Lord, I wish all four of them did but they didn't. I had to train them. You see, what is the difference between teaching and training? Training takes practice, it takes discipline, and you need a trainer. You need a trainer to say, hey, you know what? Let's 
adjust this. Let's tweak that. You need a coach. You need a mentor. So I have a little video clip right here. I'd like to show it to you, and I want you to make the call. Okay, on this one, you are the authority, right? So on this one, I want you to make the call. Are these people training for something, or are they just trying? Okay, let, let, let's, let's, let's watch this. The pain face. Is an average kid on a trampoline. He got Scorpion. He got Scorpion. Now, you know, deep down inside, there's something going on. He's a little upset. You okay, Andrew? Pain face! Okay. A little bit of red. Oh! Pain face! Yeah, man. Rock and roll, man. I got my sleeves off. Okay. And guess what? The hurt doesn't stop there, and you can't roll it away. For the greatest pain face goes to this boy. I hurt in a real way. Okay. Training or just trying? Just trying, right? Now, when you train, <laughs> look, when you train, it takes discipline and you need a mentor, you need a coach to show you how to do it. If your marriage is failing, why don't you find somebody who has a good marriage and ask them how they're doing it? Get some coaching. Get some pastoring. Get some instruction. You can't just try. The Christian faith is not about just being taught. You're here this morning because you're being taught. Thank you. Thanks for showing up. To be taught. Great. You've been taught. Now, how are you going to train? How are you going to train in a life of godliness. And it's our job to equip you, to teach you. That's why Paul tells Timothy, train yourself to be godly. How long had Timothy traveled with Paul before Paul told him that? Long time. He had trained with Paul. Paul taught him how to be godly. You need godly mentors, you need godly trainers, and you need discipline of habit. That's what it takes, my friend. That's what it takes. And it's our job to teach you that. It's our job to do that. So, don't have pain face. Start training. The role of the trainer is to show you the ropes. You need someone who can show you how to exercise, show you how to use those machines, show you how to roll and tumble, show you how to fall down and get back up. Paul told Timothy, train yourself, and that's our message to you today. So pastors care about harassed and helpless sheep. We love you. If you are here from another church, welcome. If you've been beat up at that church, double welcome because we love you and we care about you. Pastors teach and train the flock. If you don't know anything about your faith, welcome. You're in the right place because we want to teach you. If you don't know how to do it, we want to train you how to do it. And pastors do another thing. They lead fearlessly. They lead fearlessly. All pastors are leaders, but not all leaders are pastors. Pastors are called to boldly and courageously lead the flock. The New Testament uses this curious word to describe the job of pastors. It's the word oversee. The Greek word is presbyteros. That's where we get the word presbytery. That's where the Presbyterians get that, okay? But that word means to oversee. Now, it does not mean to overlord. That is not what it means. So if you've experienced that kind of pastoral leadership, that's wrong. 
It means to manage. It means to watch over. It means to conduct the affairs or to govern the affairs of the local church. That's what it means. So when Paul says to the Ephesian elders and pastors in Acts 20, watch over the flock of which God has made you shepherds. That's what he means. Manage the affairs of the local congregation. That's what it means. Here is how Peter says it in 1 Peter 5, 2 through 3. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, overseeing them with a willing heart, according to God's will, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not controlling, but leading by example. Isn't that a great description? Don't you wish every pastor looked like that? I wish I looked like that every week. This is what it means. It means that we, are, we lead sacrificially. We do not lead for sordid gain or selfishly. We lead as servants, not controlling. We are not the masters of your universe. Jesus is. But it's our job to point you to him, okay? And we lead by example. We set the pace in our character and our integrity. We set the pace. Pastors care for harassed and helpless. They teach, they train, they lead, and they do one more thing. They go after lost sheep. Amen? That's what we're supposed to be doing. Jesus taught this in a parable in Matthew 18, 12 through 14. Here's what he said. He said, what do you think? I love that. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Now, this doesn't mean, this analogy doesn't mean that we leave the 99 in a barren field. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that the 99 are left in some, you know, wolf-infested forest. It says, the implication of the parable is that the 99 sheep are already safe. They're already safe. They're already trained. They're already have been taught, okay? But then there's that one sheep out there who doesn't know Jesus as their great shepherd and the good pastor, he goes after them because he loves the lost. And I don't know if you notice around here, but we love lost people. Love them. Love lost people. And that's our job to love them. Pastors do the work of an evangelist. This is what Paul told uh, Timothy. He said, Timothy, Pastor Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Pastor Timothy, equip others to do the work of an evangelist. So we do and we equip. You look over in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, it says this. Paul says to the Ephesians, so Christ gave himself apostles, prophets, he gave evangelists, he gave pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, what does the pastor and teacher do? He equips the people of God to do what? The work of service, the works of God. The word equip is the same word Mark uses, or Matthew uses in Matthew 4.21, when Jesus comes walking by. Remember, the disciples are up on the dock. They just come in from trying to fish. And what are they doing? They are mending their nets. It's that same word for mending. 
So the picture that Paul is drawing on here is of a bunch of fishermen sitting around repairing their nets so they can go out for another haul. And that's what the pastors are supposed to be doing. Our job is to help you repair yourself and repair your nets so that you can go out into your networks and out into your life and out into your neighborhoods and your world and your workplace and bring more fish in this place so they can hear the good news of Jesus and be saved and find him as their great shepherd. That's our job, is to equip you. So it's not just to do the work of evangelism, it is to equip you for the work of evangelism. I got a glimpse of God's heart for this when I was a pastor of a s- small church and uh, years ago, and, and what happened was uh, we would have our annual summer barbecue at one of our patrons' homes down by the river. It was up in Priest River. And one year, oh, we had the best barbecue, best church cookout. So we canceled church for the weekend. We would go up to Priest River. It was so fun. And a lot of people in attendance. And my little boy, Tyler, who's now 12, he was three at the time. And I remember I had this little, uh, it was kind of like a wetsuit thing that I put him in. And then I put him in the, I put him in the, uh, his little life preserver thing. And I just cinched it all the way up. He could barely, he could barely move. But I didn't want him to go under because he couldn't swim. So he play, we played all day. We played hours of uh, volleyball. And finally, it was time to go home. I made the mistake of prematurely taking off his life vest. And, and, I, and I got sucked into one more game of volleyball. And while I was playing volleyball, Tyler meandered back down the hill to the river. And he fell in. And suddenly, uh, uh, as we were playing volleyball, one of his little friends ran up the hill and said, Tyler's in the water, Tyler's in the water. Man, I mean to tell you, I I mean, immediately. You ever heard of the sympathetic nerve system, the fight or flight mode? I went into flight. I mean, every sinew of my being was activated. I came out of that volleyball pit with a supersonic boom, dude. I light speed, I was down the hill, and I ran so fast down that hill to get my little boy out of that water, I would have got there first, except I tripped and had a dirt snack on the way down. And all the parents behind me ran past me, and I scampered to my feet in an ugly flailing run. And when I got down to the bottom, parents were, had already jumped into the water looking for him. I jumped in, and just as I jumped in, that's when I saw him. He was floating face down. And his little fingers were going like this on the dock. He was just trying to reach the dock. And someone grabbed him up and threw him on the dock. And I mean to tell you, man, I just went completely cold. Every molecule in my body just went cold. And then they grabbed him by his ankles and pushed his knees forward. And he spit up all the river water. And then he began to cry. Oh, the blessed sound of crying. Let me tell you. I have never been so grateful to hear my child cry. And I got a little glimpse of how God feels about his lost kids. Why do we talk about evangelism so much? Because this is the way God sees the lost. He sees them as helpless. And he wants to get to them. And he wants to use you and me to get them. Know what I'm saying? 
And this is the pastor's job, is to train you to be lost sheep getters. Okay, it's our job to go out and get them and bring them back into God's family because they are drowning in a self-made hell of addiction and pain and postmodernism and secularism. They have been fully inducted into the cult of self-worship and their lives are blown up because of it and God sends you and I out with a compassionate heart to bring them back into the fold. Amen? I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up and we're gonna pray and worship, take the offering. Why don't you go ahead and bow your head and let's pray. Two kinds of folks in here today. And some of you are, are just beat up sheep, man. You're just hurting right now. And man, you need a good shepherd. You need somebody to put their hand on you and love you back to life because you're hurting can I pray for you Jesus I just pray for every wounded sheep in this room right now that you will reach down supernaturally and sovereignly and touch them and completely heal them right now just begin the process of a complete restoration if they have been undernourished and sick sheep make them healthy again if they have been abused sheep, heal those wounds again. However they are hurting, Lord, I pray right now you will begin by your spirit to work that work of healing in their heart and in their life. Thank you, Jesus. If you're here this morning and, and you're just a leaderless sheep, and you say, man, I, I need to submit to Jesus' lordship, I know he's my savior. I know I got my ticket punched for heaven, but I want to start living the way God has called me to live, being trained for righteousness, for the righteous life. If that's you right now, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, forgive me. Right now I bring my life into alignment with you, and I ask that you would help me to be an obedient sheep to walk according to your word as my good pastors teach it to me. Help me to do that, Lord Jesus. And one more group of sheep in here. You're the, actually the lost sheep. And you don't know Jesus, but you want to. And you've been thinking about it. Today is your day. Will you pray with me right now? Jesus, be my shepherd. I want to come into the fold. I'm yours. I believe in you, that you died and resurrected, and that you're coming back for me. God, I pray that I would be your sheep today and that I would be found and in your fold. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now, we're going to take the offering. I want to encourage you, uh, last week was... Church in the Park wasn't a banner giving week, so if, uh, if you need to make it up, you could do that. But I, I, I want to listen. After we take the offering and after we worship, we're going to have some prayer people down in the front here, some good shepherds. And we want to lay hands on you. We want to bless you. We want to pray for you.
And if you need that this morning, we want to encourage you to come down. Okay, we're going to take the offering this morning, and, uh, and then we're going to worship, and then we'll come back. If you decided to be a sheep, a new sheep of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you in the back. There's some new believers packets on the table. Pick one up, please. Also, you got to tell somebody, so get down here to the front. One of our prayer people, we want to talk with you and pray with you. And listen, this week, be the sheep of God, the sheep of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Be the sheep and go read some more, okay? Go get some more. God bless you. Have a great week.